Okay. Uh, questions, thoughts, complaints, haiku. Yes, Wanda. Oh, you have a microphone first. Doesn't sound like it's on. Try now. Hello? There we go. Okay. The lead is not in temptation, and in Matthew it puts, and deliver us from the evil one. Yes. Okay. So I know I'm weak, and I need God's help to help me resist the devil especially in the area of you're not worthy. Mm. Okay. So then I'm confused why I know God's in control of the trial, but I interpreted what you said that he leads, he causes that temptation. Why then is he telling me to pray against that mm. if he's causing it for me? And that, that's precisely the dilemma. Um, go to, go to Luke chapter four, verse one. Um, I want to establish both sides of the dilemma then try to work our way through it. Um, so Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. You remember the occasion where Jesus tells Peter, Peter, Satan has requested to sift you. And yet I have prayed for you, and when you are restored, you shall strengthen the church. If I were Peter, I'd, but you, you said no, right? <laughs> um, and yet, so on the one hand, I'm, so, so on the one hand, clearly in Luke, in Luke chapter 4, um, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God to be tested or tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Undeniable, right? Um, then you go to James, go to James 1. Um, we get the other half of this. Um, <clears throat> 13? Hold on. James 1. Um, hold on. There we go. Um, let no one say when he is tempted, and again, same word, tempted or tested. Um, it's, it's, I don't think the solution is going to... This is a tempting, not a testing. It's the same thing. Same Greek word, same Greek word family, parosmos. Um, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each t person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire is when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown will bring forth death. <coughs> mm. So, how do we resolve? God himself tempts no one, and the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. How do we, how do we, what do we do with that? So just to, to reestablish the dilemma, the apparent dilemma, the Bible insisting the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, tested. God himself tempts, tests no one. Okay? Um, how, do we, how do we resolve that? I, I know how I want to resolve that. Do they want to take a swing at that before, before I try to do that? Anyone have any thoughts? Naomi, Olsgaard. Is it because um, Satan requests to do it, and then God allows it to happen? Well, in, this, in the in the um, in the instance with Peter, absolutely. But I, I don't know if that's if it's as simple as that. Um, sorry, that's part of it. I don't know if that's the full answer, but that's absolutely part of it. Um, anyone else before I try to untie this? Okay. Um, 
Oh, we got someone back here. Kevin Wink. The desire to sin is already in us. Yes. Yes. And that's the point that James is getting at, actually. I, I think the point to make with James is, is this. When you're being tempted, James tells us not to blame God. What are we to blame? Our own desires, right? Um, so I, I take that to be the primary point. God can lead us into temptation. He can lead Jesus into the wilderness. But when we're tempted, it's the stuff inside us that's doing the tempting. The circumstances, I th- you think of the, the, uh, the example of taking the Coca-Cola bottle and shaking it up. The circumstances can shake things up. But if and when we want to sin, it's our own desires enticing us. It's our own desires that are drawing us. And so God, what he's saying in James, has nothing to do with that. God, It's not God in my heart stirring up evil. It's my own heart trying to... It's actually a fishing metaphor. Um, lure and entice, he's using fishing and hunting language. And it's a really, it's a really memorable word picture because, to my knowledge, fish don't enjoy eating metal, Right? With me? Yes? How does a fisherman lure, get, get a fish to chomp down on a piece of cold, hard metal? How, how does a fisherman do that? Yeah, he makes it look all glittery and glamorous, makes it look like something it isn't. Right. And, and that's precisely what our own hearts do, right? And so sin, which if we saw it in the cold, naked light of day would be repulsive. We look at it, and it's not that bad, and it won't hurt anybody, and really it's quite understandable, and it's just a, and we go dive in, and we're on the hook, and when sin is conceived, I mean, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. So so that's the that's the ordering there. Now, that that's my attempt to give the answer, that James is insisting that God himself tempts no one, but go to... I'll, well, this is all setting stuff up for when we deal with providence and sovereignty. But let me show you one of the more difficult um, examples of God absolutely doing some things that look like he's doing this. Go to both same time, Second Samuel 24.1 and First Chronicles 21.1. I believe I got that right. Second Samuel 24.1, but I'm not going to read it until we... Uh, until we also have our finger in First Chronicles 21.1. Um, it's two descriptions of the exact same event. Okay, Second Samuel 24.1 and First Chronicles 21.1. Okay. Here, I'll read Samuel first. <clears throat> Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah, which was in direct prohibition of what the law commanded the king. Lest there be any question about this, skip down to verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now... O Lord, please take away the iniquity from your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Lest there be any confusion, David sins in numbering the people. And Second Samuel 24.1 tells us, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, First Chronicles 21.1 has the exact same account with a key difference, doesn't it? 
Then Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. What do you do with that? Um, my answer, you got, you got one or two options. You can say, well, the Bible clearly has contradictions and can't be trusted. That's not the right answer, but that's one option. Or, this is what I'm going to be arguing sometime in March, April, spring, when we pause and do a couple weeks on the sovereignty of God and elect providence and stuff. God is so in control that in some sense he can stand behind every act and say, I did it. So that Joseph's brothers can kidnap him, sell him into slavery, and Joseph can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Mike, we need a mic. We need a mic, Leah. Inciting means to stand next to someone, basically, and sure. urge them onto the act. Well, so God himself tempts no one. So who acts, So what I would say when you harmonize the two passages, who is the immediate agent of inciting? The, the, the Satan. Yeah. So, so God himself didn't incite anybody. God himself didn't. But except, God that, can, except that it says it. Except, no, 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 no. I can say, right, so David struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amalekites, right? Yes? That's what Nathan says to David. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amalekites. Right. David didn't strike anybody down. Right. But David's he responsible. He, there's a causality chain. All I'm saying is, I don't think it's God doing Satan's will. I think it's the other way around. Satan is the immediate agent of temptation, and God, either through planning it, or allowing it, Satan requesting it, can say, I did it, because I oversaw that. I think that's how you got to resolve it. I, I think that's the only possible way you can resolve it. Um, or you can just say the Bible contradicts itself and go home. Um, so that God can claim, claim, this is in hit the plan. So Israel needs to be, so here's the ordering, right? Israel has offended God. Israel needs judgment. And God sovereignly um, arranges a scenario where David's going to number Israel and consequently Israel's going to be punished. Now the way that God arranges that is he allows or he whatever. I mean, Satan doesn't do a single thing without God's permission in Job, right? He has to get permission for every move. So it's not like Satan's out there as this like maverick free agent. Now I, I know this stretches our understanding of God's control, but I'm just trying to do, do justice to all that the Bible has to say on the topic. Um, Carol Hardy, microphone, please. And I know I just like took the, you know, just just the rabbit hole goes deep here. I know. Oh, and Linda's lining up too. We got people. This is gonna be good. And I'm super tired and loopy, so if I say some, you know, confusing things, it's just the sickness. Yes, Carol. This isn't very theological, but it's like God is the one who who is willing to say the buck stops here. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, everything kind of like the chain of command. Kind of like there's a. I, my brother-in-law's dad had an incident happen at a base he was in charge of. He didn't do it. He probably he didn't even do anything wrong, but the buck stops there, yeah. and he didn't get a promotion for a long time after that yeah. because he was the one responsible. Yeah. So God's willing to say that. Yes. Linda. In Zechariah 3.1... 
It's kind of the same thing. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse mm. him. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's Satan in God's courtroom, as the, pictured as a prosecuting attorney. Now, what's cool is the defense attorney gets up and prosecutes the prosecution, and the prosecution never gets to say a word. But <laughs> turn, turn with me to Acts. Um, turn with me to Acts chapter, I think, 4. I got underlined here, so I'll find it in a second. Um, I, like, I like Carol Hardy's The Buck Stops Here statement, but let me... <coughs> okay. Um, Acts chapter... Yeah, okay. And the believers pray for boldness. And in verse 27 of chapter 4, now I want you to stop and think, what was the greatest sinful act ever committed? What was the greatest sin, greatest injustice, the greatest wrong ever done? Yeah, I would agree. The, the crucifixion, on the false, if you take the package deal, the false witness, the false trials, the murder, the scourgings, the mockings, that. Okay? Verse 27. This is the believer's prayer. Because <coughs> one of the things we'll see is, is the sovereignty of God is meant to affect our prayer life. Look at how they pray. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God claims sovereignty over the greatest act of sin that ever occurred. And one of the things we'll get at is, but never in a way that removes the human agency and removes human responsibility. Um, if you remember when we tried talking about this after probably two or three weeks ago, I, I said what the Bible teaches, I understand, what I understand the Bible teaches is um, that God's sovereignty does not override or nullify human decision-making and human responsibility. That God is absolutely sovereign, that God absolutely rules, that, that not an iota, not a mote of dust in a beam of light moves according outside of his will, and yet you and I really do choose things. You and I really do affect things with our actions, and we receive responsibility for what we do. So, so Joseph's brothers, you meant it for evil, presumably, and you're guilty, and God meant it for good. Well, if God meant it for good, it's not my fault. No, he's able to blame them and praise God in one sentence. And even our good works, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So I need to get to work. We get the word energy from energo there. Um, get to work. Why? It's God who works within me, both the will and to do according to his good pleasure. Well, if God is energoing in me, if God is working in me, can't I just sit back, let go, and let God? No, I need to get to work. So when I actually obey, was it me or was it God? Yes. Yes. And that, I know this is like heavy-duty stuff, but that's my understanding of the sovereignty of God. So, so as much as... God does it, David truly confesses his sin, and he sinned, and he needs his guilt pardoned. I mean, it, that doesn't nullify David sinning and David needing forgiveness. Um, it's, it's not either or. It's both and. God is able to work in and through human agency to accomplish his good purposes, and we make real choices with moral consequence. 
that have effect on things. I would, I would insist the Bible is emphatic on both of those truths. And we, int- we naturally want to make it one or the other. And so if you hear the one, it, you think it nullifies the other. And so I know people who are big on the sovereignty of God, who the second you tell people to choose or do, oh, they get really uncomfortable. And likewise, other people who they hear about the sovereignty of God, okay, we're all robots then. No. It's this sort of both and thing. Um, Simeon wants to say something, so microphone over to... Oh, no. Linda, were you getting ready to say something? I, oh, oh, then... Oh, good grief. I would... No, I was... Pass the mic back and forth. It's never going to leave the center aisle. Okay. <laughs> on a side note, yes. I just was going to ask, on point one... Yes, ma'am. The notes. Yes. Uh, number three. What was the blanks for that? Your name be sanctified by others also. No, it was assumes something, something, oh. blessings. Oh, oh, okay, sorry. Assumes new covenant blessings. New covenant blessings. The, the logic being, we only get to call God Father by virtue of his spirit of adoption, which is, as we read in, in Ezekiel, what God gives in the new covenant. And Jesus, even later in that passage, saying the Father will give the spirit to those who ask. He's teaching them to pray, assuming new covenant blessings. Blessings that in some sense haven't even happened yet. It's not till Pentecost that they receive the Spirit, but he's training them to pray that way now. Simeon. This is one of those theological things that we must grasp so that the gospel is true, because otherwise when we accept salvation, who's saving us, ourselves or God? And so we have to kind of understand that it's both in a certain small sense. Well, no, let me... Let because me, you I'm, say, yes, I will accept God's salvation, but... God saves you because you can't save yourself. Well, let me, let me, you absolutely choose Christ. You do it without any constraint, without any outside compulsion. No one's twisting your arm. You really did choose to put your faith in Christ. Absolutely. Amen. Hallelujah. Full stop, period. And no one knows the Father except whom the Son chooses to reveal him to. And, and again, the Bible will emphatically insist so that Paul will call on men. God has commanded on all men everywhere to repent. It's this apostolic New Testament preaching of the cross in Acts. And we'll read, and as many as were preordained to eternal life believed. And the Bible can talk both ways with these urgent appeals. Second Corinthians 5, Paul, we implore you, as though God were making his appeal through us, be reconciled to Christ. We're imploring, we're begging. And when we beg, it's like God's begging through us. And the same Apostle Paul can say, why do you labor, Paul? Why do you put up with all the persecution? I do it for the sake of God's elect. And I know, I know that intuitively, we, I, I get that we want to say, well, then why are you begging? Because God's begging through us. You know, and... So the whole challenge is not to let the one truth nullify the other. They're both true. God's absolute sovereignty and our doing things and, and acting and you know things happen and we're responsible. They're both biblically taught. The challenge is holding on to both of them. Inevitably, we want to hold on to one tighter than the other and slowly start letting go of the other. So, yeah. It's free will within the sovereignty of God. Yeah. I mean, so Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther... Luther wrote The Bondage of the Will, and Jonathan Edwards wrote The Freedom of the Will, and they're arguing the same thing. No, they're absolutely arguing the same thing. Edwards is arguing from the point of view, you only ever do what you want. 
In fact, he goes so far as to say, if you ever do what you don't want, you weren't free. Freedom, according to Edwards, is defined as being able to act upon your greatest desire, whatever. So you got all these warring desires within you. Why did Simeon choose to do thing X? Because it was at the end of the day what he most wanted to do. So even when the guy pulls a gun on you and you hand over your wallet, you did it because you wanted to do that more than take your chances grappling with him. Right? Um, in your limited selection of options, that was the best option. <laughs> At least you thought so. And you can be wrong. And you can even choose things while you want to do other things. I, I would like to lose weight. I want to eat ice cream. You know, So there's this tension where I can... But at the end of the day, I'm going to do what I most want to do. And that's what Edwards is arguing. So he's saying, look, what... What defines an action as free? An action is free if no outside agent is making you... If, if your, your decision was based upon your desires and you doing what you most wanted to do. That's Edward's definition of freedom. By that definition, everything you do is free. And you're, you're free in every sense by that definition. I fully agree with that. What Luther was arguing is that the will wants sin. So you take the two put them together. Edward's... You're free if you can do what you want. Luther, what you want to do is sin. <laughs> they're both arguing the same thing. Um, they're just looking at it from different angles. But it's ironic that they have opposite titles to their book, their books. Um, but that, that's the point they're getting at, is you can do whatever you want. That's the problem. <laughs> You're going to do whatever you want. And then what happens when you find out, according to the Bible, every thought and intention of man's heart was continually evil which is said before the flood, and a chapter after the flood. The flood didn't stop that being a problem. So, anyway. Anyway. Elsa's got the, the mics back in the center again. Okay. Um, you guys should start a podcast or something. Elsa and Linda. Um, is it correct to say then in Romans 7, when Paul speaks about... Oh, you're about going to Romans 7. Okay. No, but... Paul, I'm going to let you down because I'm not going to agree with MacArthur. Paul speaks about our battle oh, with the flesh. Oh, Linda's about to charge the... Okay. Sorry. 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 Paul, what? When he talks about our battling with our flesh, the flesh yes. and the spirit's battling, yeah, yeah. is that not what the Bible teaches, that you should crucify your yeah. flesh? And the more you crucify, the less you'll be tempted and fall Right. Well, oh, and even in Galatians 6, the same yeah. thing. So there's desires of the spirit or against the desires of the flesh, so you cannot do what you want to do. So, no, absolutely, we'll have within us two competing and contradictory, mutually exclusive sets of desires. But at the end of the day, when you choose to either obey or you choose to sin... It was in that moment, that's what you more wanted to do. On the scale, is that one won out. So I'm not denying that we can't have the experience of doing what we don't want to do, but we only do what we don't want to do because some part of us did want to do it, um, right? So we, we know that experience. So, so Edwards isn't in any way denying that. He's just saying at the end of the day, um, well, I mean, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Volition our, our, our engaging with our will is what we see as assigning moral culpability. So if you accidentally do something, we don't assign much moral culpability to it at all, right? Um, if, you, if you accidentally, without even meaning to, you didn't know what you were doing, even if you do something terrible and cause the deaths of people, you know what I mean? If you're a, you know, um, no, no, like let's just say you're, uh, you're involuntary manslaughter. You know, it's, a, it's some, somebody runs out in front of your car, you know, and you were driving at a safe speed. 
Um, you didn't mean to do it. Now, if you meant to do it, that changes it all the difference in the world, right? Intention. And so, actions only have moral, moral weight to them if they're done voluntarily. Voluntarily. So, um, so the will, and so, so according to Edwards, I'm saying is the only way you're free is if you're doing what you want. If some part of you said yes, some part of you engaged and said, I want, and that's where we get either the praise or the condemnation for action. If we find out the reason somebody gave millions of dollars to a charity was to get a tax write-off, we're less, we suddenly stop being impressed, right? Um, or, no, I didn't mean to do this good thing, it's just, you know, whatever. Um, so it's, it's our desires engaging. So Edwards is saying, look, um, for an action to have moral consequence and for an action to be free, it has to be in keeping with what we wanted. You've got to argue that. The, other, the only other possibility, and some people in the extreme free will camp try to argue moral choices, and this, this ultimately becomes nonsense. Um, choices have no cause. Choices are spontaneous events that sort of pop up and down. There's two problems with that view. It's nonsense. I mean, it's gibberish. No, no, no. I mean, in, in, in a simple... In a simple um, in a simple logic sense, to have an effect without a cause is gibberish. Um, to have something happen without a cause, an effect without a cause, is, is nonsense. It's, it's just nonsensical. You, what do you mean? This thing happened. Why did it happen? No reason why it happened. There is no cause for this event. Um, and ethically, you lose all moral culpability attached to it. So if you want to go to human choices have no cause, they just sort of spontaneously create, then you just basically, as far as I can understand, didn't, like, just from a logical sense, that doesn't make any sense, and you just destroyed the ground of moral responsibility. Because if there's, why did this person kill that person? No reason whatsoever. Then, then how do you blame that person? And if that person did something good, why did they do it? No reason whatsoever. How is that praiseworthy? No, it has to link to desire and the reason why the person who murdered is wrong is because his heart wanted to do that. And the reason why we praise the person who is heroic is because they wanted to risk their life to save the other person in that moment. So you've got to assign that. You've got to, you've got to keep that chain going just for simple, logical sense and to maintain any sense of uh, moral responsibility anyway sorry we're, we're going off on a tangent on a tangent on a tangent but linda you have the microphone still or are we going to go all the way back to the back nope okay they're done for now folks they will be back and we dodged romans 7 i'm so glad for that no we won't talk sorry. linda no, not linda sorry um brain donna i made you do that I just have a probably a dumb question here, but how would you respond to somebody that says to you, "The devil made me do it"? Um, I don't know about you guys, but I hear that a lot. I would say the same answer in James works that way. I think you could just as easily say James says, "Let no one say when he's being tempted of being tempted by God." I'd say, "Let no one say when he's being tempted of being tempted by the devil," because the answer is still is the same. The most immediate cause of I need to look no further than my own desires and heart. Now, does God? stand behind, ultimately, the events that brought me into a place of trial? Absolutely. Could God, have, could God have not given me this cold? Could he have stopped that? Yes or no? So me having this cold, either tacitly or intentionally, God is responsible for. Yes? He could have stopped it. He knew it was coming. He didn't. 
So either tacitly, he permitted it, or he sent it, he stands behind this cold. And this cold has absolutely been a trial and a cause for my own sinful impatience to manifest itself. So I've been tempted in this trial. Do I, am I supposed to blame God? No. James says no. I, I, it turns out that when I don't feel good, I'm selfish. It turns out when I don't get what I want and I'm tired, I, I, I snap at people. It turns out I've been that way the whole time, just you didn't know as much because I was getting what I wanted and I didn't feel bad. So the problem is me, that the events put highlight my heart on display, and God absolutely is overarching on that. But when the impatience and when the um, the whining, well, man flu it's, it's a deadly disease. Man flu is you know you've heard of it. It's, yeah, it's, clinics have proven it. You know, um, and uh, <laughs> but but God absolutely is sovereign over me having a cold. And yet, whatever temptation is sin that this cold has done is me. It's my own heart. I don't need to look any further. So I wouldn't say the devil tempted me any more than I say God tempted me. Um, we know Satan does tempt, but why does Jesus not sin? Because there's nothing in him to respond. Um, and we know, we know Satan tested and tempted Job, and he, at least in the first two rounds, perseveres through it. You know, he gets tripped up when Satan brings the friends in, but you know, at least I presume that was Satan. Um, but uh, he makes it through the first two rounds there. So, yeah. Next, I saw it there in the mic. Oh, back to Kevin. When we deal with temptation, we have to remember that, or we have to wrestle with our our own reality of, do we feel that we deserve God's grace? Mm. Because just because God withholds grace and lets us mm. do what we want... <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. we, we don't deserve the grace He gives each and every one of us, Christian or non-Christian, yeah. every day. We all live by His grace. And it, for Him to withhold that in a trial or a temptation mm. assumes that, and we get angry about it, it assumes the fact that we think we deserve that grace. Yeah. No, no, no ab- absolutely, Kevin. I'll, I'd go a step further. To speak of deserving grace is, not, is, is a category error. You might as well speak of a round square or, or, or a cold heat. Grace definitionally is what is undeserved. Definitionally. And so the second we think God ought to be gracious to me, we don't understand grace. We think the square is a circle, we think the circle is a square, because grace can't be oughted. It can, can only be freely given. Um, and so, yeah, we, we get so accustomed to God's grace that we... Uh, we start to complain when he doesn't give it. I'll tell you a quick story that R.C. Sproul tells a lot that I like um, about the difference between justice and grace. He, uh, he was in his class, and the first day of class at seminary, told all the students, and here's the deal, I don't accept late papers. If your paper's late, this is zero. That's it. And there are three papers due. Here are the dates they're due. Mark them down, and uh, don't, don't bring them in late. And the first... Mark shows up, and there's about five students trembling in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, Professor Sproul, my word processor collapsed, or my dog ate the whatever, and could you please just give us the weekend, and we'll have it in, we promise. And he said, okay. And they left, you know, rejoicing. 
Well, then the second exam comes, the second paper is due. <coughs> and now there's about 10 students who, um, who uh, haven't done their paper. And they, again, come up and they entreat him. Oh, Professor Sproul, please, please just give us an extension. You know, it's playoff season or whatever, you know. And um, he's, okay, you got the weekend. Then third paper comes to you. Now it's like 20 kids. They're not even trembling anymore. No worries, Professor Sproul. I'll just get it into you on Monday. To which he goes, Johnson. Yeah. You don't have your paper? Yeah. That's okay. I'll have it in the, on Monday. Zero. He goes, do you know what that student then responded with? That's not fair. I love the way he tells the story. He said, oh, it's fair you want. Johnson, if I recall, you didn't have your second paper done either, right? Yeah, okay, that's a zero, too. Who else wants fair? <laughs> and the point is we can presume upon grace that when someone's gracious every day and every day, we do get to the point where we start to feel like we deserve it. That when there's not the same grace given. He, he told them up front what justice was, what the rules were, and they presume upon it. And just because he's not as gracious that day, all of a sudden, they got a complaint against him. And so God pours lavish grace in our life, and one day there's a little less grace, and I have a cold. And why did you do that? You know, and I, you know, I, no, precisely. Go, go to, um, go to, uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1. Um, here's another. This is ultimately going back to your question, Wanda. <laughs> um, in a roundabout way, we're getting there. Okay. Pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. There's that word. Why are you, if, why is it necessary that we may be grieved for a little while by various trials and temptations? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may result may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's Satan's intention in trials. So whose intention are we talking about? Whose purpose? Are we, this is God's purpose. Why might God purpose and allow trials into our lives? To test, refine, and demonstrate the purity of our faith. So that's, that's a reason. Uh, it's not because he's a sadist. It's not because he doesn't love us. And next week we're going to see that. What father, when his son asks for an egg, gives him a scorpion? Now, there are plenty of times where you ask for bread, and it sure looks like a stone, right? And then the test of faith is we take a bite out of it. I'm pretty sure I'm going to chip my teeth. You know, and, and so Jesus will address that even when we look at it next week, that, you know, um, you can be confident as children that if you come to your father and ask him for things, the things he gives you are good. Um, it's just challenging when it sure doesn't look like they are. Um, 
But Peter says that's the purpose in it. God's, God's desire for us is that we would share in His holiness. His desire for us is not necessarily that we'd be immediately and always happy. I mean, any parent gets that. If I wanted to make my children immediately and temporally happy, they would eat candy and never go to sleep. Right? What would make them immediately happy right now? No nap, candy. I would hate them if I did that. Wouldn't I? Right? So I'm willing to make them eat their vegetables and I'm willing to make them take a nap because I'm hoping they're going to grow, develop through those things, and and get stronger, right? Um, God wants to conform us to the image of His Son. Now He promises us in 1 Corinthians 10.13 He will not let the trial or the temptation be greater than His grace and what we can handle. This huge bread and butter verse, no temptation or no trial, same word, has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond your ability. Now again, that assumes God is in control of the trial. He can only make promises like that if he's in control of the trial. And with... Yes, yes, Wanda. Mike, microphone. Okay, so I have, I'm not... My thoughts aren't totally composed, but then in praying that... You would, okay, I'm interpreting that then when I, when I say the Lord's Prayer, sometimes, you know, you're just like, I got nothing. So you, that's when I usually go to the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. And I expound on each one of those verses, those thoughts. So like, lead me down to temptation. So then to me, that would be, okay, don't let me give into the sin. Don't let me give into any sin. But then is that also, God don't, you would you intervene? I don't know. Okay, no, no, no. Let, I let me, can't this, get no, that this, thought no, out. No, there, there, there's absolutely some some tension even here. I mean, and, and let me press this out with Jesus. Did Jesus willingly go to the cross? Did Jesus set his face for Jerusalem, knowing what he was in for? Did Jesus know that that was good? That that was the will of his Father? Did Jesus know and acknowledge how much good would come as a result of that? Mm-hmm. Did Jesus ask not to go? They both can be present. I can know this is God's will. I can know this is good ultimately. And I can pray that God take it away. And I, and I think that's the tension that we can wrestle with. God, I know, I mean, James, count with all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. I know that this trial is for my good. I know that you are working good. In, I, I don't like it, I don't, but I know you're doing that. I'd like you to take it away, please. Mm-hmm. Jesus absolutely prayed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if I'm going to go through it, help me learn from it. and better. Okay. Yes. So, so it's, you can apparently, simultaneously, see this as good, and not like it and want it to be taken away. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Jesus was able to simultaneously view the cross that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you wouldn't really pray, God, restrain the devil. But Whatever the you, trial is, whether it's the devil, yeah. whether it's my family, whether yeah. it's, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, whether it's my own sinful, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, please, I'm weak. I don't want to be tested and tried. Okay. That's what I'm asking. Mm-hmm. Um, but the very fact of asking means he's in control of it. If mm-hmm. God simply said, well, I have nothing to do with that, why are you talking yeah. to me? Okay, gotcha. Yep. The, the whole request presupposes that God's in control. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he'd be like, well, I have nothing to do with that. So, 
Good. All right. So, and, and Luke's already shown the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness. And, mm-hmm. and so God is in control of those things. Now, it's, what we're getting is permission. And not even just permission. You're getting instruction to not feel bad, to not feel wimpy. I wish I was one of those saints who, you know, this is, again, we get back to sort of those nights, you know, bring it on, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I'm saying, God, take it away. I want this cold to be over. It is a tiny trial. I mean, I feel embarrassed even mentioning this cold as a trial, knowing what some of you guys have gone through. But I, without any shame, pray that God would take it away. Okay. No shame. Do I know that this cold is working together for my good? Yes. Do I want it to go away? Yes. <laughs> and, and, and I don't feel bad about saying either of those two things. Lee, you want to... Oh, oh with microphone. No. There are people who listen online, Lee. I talk to them sometimes. Well, I always like to hear, to remember this phrase, and it's it's in scripture, but I know the Catholics are big on it, sorry, but it's the fellowship of his suffering, that we should remind ourselves that, you know, he suffered, he really suffered, and whatever little bit of stuff that he throws at us or whatever happens that we end up suffering, we should be glad of it in that sense. Right. We, we get to, yeah, to, to the degree. I mean, this gets back to Kevin's point about we deserve grace. Vodi Bauckham makes this point, and Vodi Bauckham can be brutal sometimes. And he'll, he'll talk to somebody who's, you know, I, God wants me happy. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. And I'm not happy, you know, in this marriage, or I'm not happy here, or whatever. And so I know God wants. Are you kidding me? Sorry, you got to. Vodi's this big, like, how tall is he, Zeb? 6'4, 300 pounds of muscle, black guy, big guy. And he's like, let me see if I understand this correctly. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God was crushed for the glory of the Father, but you, he wouldn't want unhappy. <laughs> and we start thinking we have more rights and deserve better treatment than Jesus. If they called the master of the house, Beelzebub, what will they call his servants? And and we slip into thinking we deserve better treatment. We have better rights. We 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 that, Jesus can put up with that, but not me. And we put that note and we take that thought and put it out in the light of day and it's ugly and awful, and yet without even realizing that's what we're thinking, that's a lot of times what we're thinking. Which is why it's helpful to unpack that and take it out into the light. Now there's one other hand and then we're out of time. So who, who's the last person with the microphone? I saw a hand. I have the microphone. Oh, he's got the mic. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad that you tied in discipline and pruning with uh, this whole thing because it is so important and God disciplines those he loves. And is that not part of the sanctification process? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, let's close by going to the passage you're citing, Hebrews 12. We'll close with Hebrews 12. Renee, you, you've brought us back around full circle, bringing us home. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 12. And again, getting back to this notion that God isn't first and foremost. C.S. Lewis talks about this. We, we like to think of God not as a heavenly father, but a heavenly grandfather. You know, I hope the kids are happy. Here's some candy. You know, um, he, not a, So we have a hard time wrestling with a father who actually wants us to grow and disciplines us for our good and is willing to push us in uncomfortable places that we can be matured, which is what every parent does. I don't want to go to school. Get on the bus. You know, um, I don't want to learn how to tie my shoes. You know, grow up. You know, I don't want to get toilet trained. 
you, you, you love them and you're, you're going to grow up. Um, and uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says this absolutely clear. This is what Renee was referencing. We'll close with this. Um, and it starts, it starts with Jesus' suffering. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, which is Kevin's reminder. We need to stop every now and then and consider what Jesus put up with so we can get over our big bad selves and what we think we deserve. It, would, it helps us to endure, to pause every now and then. And Wait a second. Jesus suffered this, and I'm upset because... okay. Consider him. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. Imagine trying to encourage someone with that one. Have you shed your blood yet in this struggle? Oh, you're still <laughs> you're still on the beginner level. Um, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. When God brings trials and uncomfortable things in, he's treating you like a child. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated in your illegitimate children and not sons. <clears throat> We're tempted to think that those trials and those difficulties are marks that God may not love us. The author of Hebrews says it's the exact opposite. It's a mark of sonship. It's a mark of God's love. That he's, he's not content to leave me like I am. He's going to conform me to the image of his son, whether I like it or not. He loves me enough to do that. He doesn't just give me the candy and tell me I can skip my nap. He loves my making my kids take a nap is an act of love. Now, they may not view it that way, but I'm loving them. And for Lee and the small group at her house, I'm loving them too. Because um, ain't nobody happy if my kids miss their naps. Um, but they are dis Okay, besides this, we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to him. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's God's purpose in trials. That's God's purpose in trials. So, but here's the good news. You don't need to say, okay, I'm going to be a super Christian God. Bring all the trials on. We we're told, lead us not in temptation, lead us not into trial. And yet, that's, so we've got permission, we've got instruction from Jesus to say, I, I don't want no more trials. <laughs> and yet, the very fact that we're asking God, we're recognizing his control over that. He may say no, he may say no, I, I permitted Satan's request to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, and after you're restored, you know, so I'll, I'll give you the grace you need to get through it. We are well over time, so we will stop here. We'll talk more about prayer next week. Thank you.